Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Fanalytics podcast. We've got something different, an industry-focused topic. I have, a, I have a special guest today, one of my all-time favorite MBA students, Hari Gopal. Thank you, Mike, for your very kind intro. Uh, Hari is about to, he's leaving the Emory family and is about to start a job as a management consultant. Are you excited, Hari? I'm very excited. Uh, it is everything I could dream of is giving advice professionally for the rest of my life. So. <laughs> well, and, and, and that's great. And, and I think this is a, um, the consulting training at a top MBA program is a great preparation for a career, of course, but I think it's also a great preparation to be a sports fan. I don't know if you're going to agree with that. Or no, I, I think it is. I think it gives you another level to how you watch sports and, and how you sort of consume content. So it, it's basis. either great preparation or it's the worst preparation, <laughs> yeah. right? As you become very annoying while watching things or you're the best fan of all time, one of the two. And, and so I'll, I'll tell you one of my favorite memories of having you in class, and I don't even remember how it came up. I mean, when I, when I teach that sports analytics class, I tend to talk a lot about what I'm interested in. So I was probably talking about combat sports, and that probably got us into the topic of professional wrestling. Yeah, huge fan. The number one sport, I think, of all time. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So sports entertainment, veering towards combat sports, which I think is an interesting combination. Yeah. I think that one of the things, I I think it's really funny. I'm a big sort of NBA Twitter user. I'm a big Twitter user. And whenever people say, like, I can't believe, obviously the NBA is scripted. Is uh, as a fan of scripted sports like professional wrestling, I think it's very silly to hear. Like, if the NBA is scripted, it's the worst writers of all time. They're not very good writers, and it's not very interesting. But to watch scripted sports and to think about where they're going, especially in combat sports and how you create matchups and how you do those things, is a super interesting way to think about sports. If you think about every week, if the NFL could pick who plays who based on where their records were and et cetera, it'd be sort of a different nuance, a different flavor to how you watch sports overall, I think. Well, let's deviate from our topic just for a second now that you've gone down that path. Uh, I don't know when we're going to air this episode, but right now the um, the Cavs are down 2-0. The Cavs have played the the uh, the Warriors for the last how many seasons in a row? It is now the 16 the, seasons yeah, in a row. It feels like 16 seasons in a row. Uh, so it, it does feel something like the world's worst scripting in in terms of that. Now, I, I would say this, you know, in in you know, the NBA has something I think very much in common with this combat sports sector or 
the the sports entertainment area in that it's really driven by star power. Yeah. I think it's one piece driven by star power, but it's another piece that the NBA has done really well recently, which is, if you take some of this from combat sports, is creating enough space that you can develop storylines. You saw that between games one and two, this sort of this idea of like J.R. Smith doesn't know what he's doing and will he come back and be a hero or is he going to come back and, and be a goat? There's, you know, there's a lot of complaints around sports fans on this delay between game one and game two or, you know, sort of this huge gap. But there's a, a better idea to say if you create this gap, it allows you to have richer storylines, better analysis, better understanding of what's going on. And when that occurs, you get richer audiences and people who better understand the game and are more in tune with it rather than, and it's something that baseball struggled with for a long time is 162 games. It's hard to build storylines day after day of why you should be watching a game when NBA finals or if you look at every game in the NFL season matters because there's some big story that you need to be behind, whether it's a rivalry or they'll find something that'll get you in as a hook into the game. Okay, well, let me let me ask you a question about that. I, I want to spend time with this notion of storylines because I think that's I think it's a key aspect of all sports and especially to, you know, sports entertainment and wrestling. When you say a storyline, what do you mean by that? And so I'll take it from sort of the wrestling perspective and I'll try and mirror it in, in sort of actual sports. But, you know, if you think of a storyline in wrestling, there's sort of a large story arc, right? There's a, a heel and a face. So the idea that the heel is the bad guy and the face is the good guy. And so you want to spend every day saying, how is the bad guy trying to get over the good guy? And how is the good guy going to sort of well, let, let's add a little, that let's, bad guy? Let's add a little color to this. So who's your, uh, who's your historically favorite heel and your it, favorite face of all time? The... Historically favorite face of all time has to be The Rock. The Rock is phenomenal and fantastic and excellent. You can see it in Hollywood. He's a very good face. He's like a very exciting person to sort of get behind. Historically, my favorite villain was Hulk Hogan. I think Hulk Hogan is, one, seems to be naturally a heel in real life because he might be a bit of a racist. (laughs) But in fact, in addition to that, happens to be just like a guy who is, you know, just plays a very good bad guy. Uh, And his sort of, if you look at his career arc, he was like, Super good guy, eat your vegetables, like be a nice guy. Take your vitamins. Take your vitamins, like that kind of stuff. And then has this big sort of heel turn in like the mid-90s where he turns on all the good guys in the company and says, I'm going to join this bad faction. Just an observation, Hari. So when The Rock was, um, I don't know, it is WWE height. I'm thinking that was mid-90s? Yeah, mid-90s, yeah. And how old were you then? I was, I don't know, 10, 11. Okay, and so I think that might be an important part of that. Yeah, and I think it is. And you get some of that if you think of it the same way. And I think it's very funny when you sort of see these kind of concepts combined. But if you think about that Hulk Hogan storyline when it happened. You're it's talking sort about the, the – Hulk Hogan. We have to assume that others are not yeah. as familiar. The so New World Order. The New World Order, he sort of becomes a bad guy, is is very – like was high parallelism between that if you were sort of on Twitter and when LeBron made the decision to go to Miami. <laughs> Right, it's this sort of idea that like you've been this good guy who's trying to carry everything on your back, and then all of a sudden at this major moment, you switch over to essentially a villain team of like super athletes to go and win championships well, and like abandon your hometown. And let me let me just provide a little bit of historical background on that for for some of the some of the other folks out there. So Hulk Hogan, of course, came up through the the 1980s, most notably, you know, fought uh, Andre the Giant, was the all-time face, I think. all-time good guy, never had any blemishes against him. He had his uh, alliance with uh, Macho Man Randy Savage. Savage. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Shouldn't even try and do that. No, it's very good. (laughs) Uh, 
and so there's that background. And I think that's important for this yeah. idea of story development or, or character development. Hogan sort of, I mean, when he did that turn in the 90s as a, as a guy who, you know, saw him in the 80s, he actually already seemed like an old guy. Yeah. He was already an old guy and, and sort of said, can I continue being a good guy for the rest of my career? And essentially, in his mind, said, no, I can't do this anymore. And there's other one other part to this, right? Because he came up through the WWF, later became the WWE, and the New World Order was in... It was in WCW, a rival brand. So it was Hogan appearing out of nowhere. And if I re- remember correctly, he, he first started out as the, the babyface type. Yep. Started off as the good guy, and then sort of this rival faction, which apparently... The storyline goes that they had come from WWF to WCW to create chaos and interrupt matches, and that's what was their whole brand. And they said, we have a secret third member, and everyone in WCW was like, who is the secret third member? Who could it be? And then at a major event in July of 97, it turns out it's Hulk Hogan, and then fans throw trash in the ring. It's this big, major, sort of defining wrestling moment, sort of all time in wrestling lore you used an interesting word there brand Um, can you tell me what you mean by that yeah so if you sort of think of it as um when you think of the brand is sort of in two ways there's sort of the overall wrestling brand so thinking about how is wrestling perceived by outsiders so if you think of someone like how you look at wrestling as a listener how do you think about wrestling and then within wrestling things are subjected into sub brands or subclasses so there can be the New World Order, as we're talking about, is a faction. They have a brand. Their brand was... A stable. A stable, <laughs> right? They are going to be this sort of faction that is, like, uh, mean and, and goes against the rules and, like, is disruptive. And then you have sort of this good guy faction, which at the time was just sort of WCW as a whole, which was led by all these nice guys who were trying to do the right thing. And it was sort of this very interesting moment in wrestling where Hulk Hogan makes this turn. And then all of a sudden people are like, maybe I like the bad guys more than I like the good guys, which was this sort of beginning of this anti-hero thing that you sort of see across pop culture now, is that people said, like, maybe I identify with more complex characters than just, I'm a good guy who beats up the bad guys, which is sort of this 1950s idea of, like, how we define good and bad. Well, you know, I think that's an interesting point. I think you mentioned that your favorite face of all time was The Rock. I think The Rock has definitely gone back and forth, right? Yeah, he definitely, in sort of the mid, before he turned to this sort of face idea or good guy idea, he was definitely a bad guy for a long time. He used to run around with different factions that were negative, and he used to align himself with a corporate group. But at the end, he always ended up as a you know a good guy who would do the right thing, which is sort of, again, sort of an old-school concept of wrestling. But the idea is, like, you were a bad guy for a long time, and then you have this sort of moment of clarity and then go back to being a good guy again. Yeah, I, I guess that's an interesting thing, and it's, it's an interesting thing in terms of how we think about... You know, you know I, I tend to think of athletes and teams as... as operating similarly to brands and in, in other uh, in other categories it's interesting so i i guess you know you can be a, a brand on either side of it right yeah and i think like and that's that's why i bring up the lebron brand because i think it's so interesting his career arc right it's sort of this if you look at it in wrestling terms it's sort of this you know super good baby face guy who gets drafted by his hometown team he's from akron he gets drafted by cleveland he grew up a Cavs fan he plays for the team. He takes them their first championship in, in God knows how long in 04. And then he's there. He's about to make his decision in front of the Boys and Girls Club in Cleveland. It's like you couldn't have – like it is 1997 NWO kind of stuff. He like is in front of all these kids who look up to him in his hometown at his own Boys and Girls Club. And he's like, I'm going to go to Miami. And it's just – 
like I wish I, I actually watched the decision last night because I got a little bored with game two and I watched it again and it's beautiful storytelling. Like it could not have been like it was written from a, uh, obviously a wrestling writer had written it because it was so well done. Him going there and then showing up in Miami. If you remember, they like come out in the jerseys and he goes not one championship, not two championships, not three. It's just a beautiful like two weeks of like amazing sports that happened and and it felt like very like professional wrestling and because of it like NBA was able to like capitalize on those kind of storylines and really do amazing things. I, I think that's interesting because I when I think of the LeBron story, I have some similar thoughts. I don't I don't necessarily connect it to wrestling. I think that's a good way to look at it though. I, I always think of it as those guys were sort of trying to follow the Michael Jordan playbook. Yeah. Right. So they looked at Michael Jordan as this really successful brand, basketball player turned into a brand and want the same thing for LeBron. I'm guessing that you're right, though, that it there is more of an emphasis on scripting out the future. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing that we all want to guess, right? I mean, and even you see this in professional wrestling now, is you say, okay, I'm looking at the, the people who are wrestling now. Who do I think is going to go from good to bad or from bad to good? What do I believe is going to be the change that will occur? And you're seeing that right now with some of this free agency talk about LeBron. Is LeBron going to chase championships, which we, like, in general, as sports fans think is a bad thing to do. We say like, oh, you should you know be your hometown team or whatever. Or is he going to like chase being the brand? Is he going to go to a Houston where he could pile up more championships? And then there's some question about like, are these championships valid? And, you know, all these ide- ideas. And we want to do that because we want this idea of like scripting storylines and having this sort of amazing, you know, story arc that happens. Okay, well, well, let me ask you something about that. And so if we think about this notion of, let's say, building a brand by making the right kind of decisions, you know, when we think about wrestling, and, and, and I want to, I think about this in terms of this notion of like star power. So LeBron obviously is a star. He is the star in the NBA, right? Yeah. Are we moving towards something or, you know, let me get your perspective on the idea of, do stars have to be positives? I mean, can stars be villains as well? I think stars can be villains, and I think that is a new concept in... Outside of wrestling. Outside of wrestling. I think it's a new concept in sports. I think this idea that you cheer for the bad guy when he's on your team, that's sort of that hockey enforcer mentality. But you, but you, So you can say, oh, God, I love LeBron. He's a bad guy, but yeah. I love him. I think, yeah, I think it happens all the time, right? I think you see a bit of this happening in baseball right now. As a big Braves fan, being from the Atlanta area, you saw this. You're seeing this with Bryce Harper right now, right? Bryce Harper is vilified by the Atlanta fan base. He dragged his foot across the A when he was walking up to the plate. Like, right, these, like, sort of seminal moments of Bryce Harper not, like, we you know, we play clown music when he comes up to the plate. Like, it's it's a very big thing. But there's this very small window that Bryce Harper is going to be a free agent and might come to Atlanta next year. So you're seeing this fan base say, like, oh, I hate this guy. And then when he comes and might be our guy, we're like, well, if he was our guy, obviously I'd like him. But, he, you know, he's not our guy. And I think that that's the cheer for the name on the front, not on the back sort of mentality that says... I don't mind cheering for a villain if my, the villain is on my team. And I think that you'll see that replicated through sports. And people are okay saying, I don't love this guy, but if he's on my team, he's on my team. I'll go a little old school on that with you. Do you remember the um, where you sort of a sports fan during the, the Bulls runs in the yeah, 90s? Yeah. And I think I think Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman is exactly like that. And Dennis Rodman at that same time made a crossover into professional wrestling yeah. and joined that NWO faction. Yeah. So <laughs> wrestling is everything. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, absolutely Bulls fans would have told you they hated Dennis Rodman. Then he started playing for them and they loved Dennis Rodman. Yeah. I mean, I don't see how you can't love someone who helps your team. It's very easy to hate on a bunch of players that you don't know, but you know, it's the same as like going back to baseball, these ideas of guys who like flip their bat and you're like, oh, can't stay. They didn't play by the code. 
Yeah. And they play on your team, and you're like, love it. This is all I want to see in baseball is us yeah. flipping our bat. And so I think people are fine having villains on their team. I think the idea is now what's the next step like i think there's a lot of people who would apologize for players on their team that do something wrong and say it's not really like that what do you think the role is of star power in driving let's say pay-per-view sales or driving ratings for an nba series so i think that's really it's an interesting idea because i think wrestling embraces what sports doesn't in that way in the fact that it allows you know sort of this idea of cutting a promo you get on the mic and you say like I'm going to beat you up. There's no chance of you beating me at, you know, at WrestleMania this weekend. That sort of cutting promo thing has been completely neutered in sports, which is sort of this very interesting idea is that you only hear sort of like quiet snipes or you say like, you know, sources say, you know, X, Y, and Z is upset. I think that because I don't want you to damage my brand. Yeah. Right. And I think this when we're talking about like the NFL or MLB. And I think there's a real opportunity to like allow players to say what they want to say. And that would drive sales through the roof. And I think, you know, that's how they build pay-per-views in, in wrestling is they say week to week, they almost get in a confrontation. They call each other out on the microphone. They say, you know, <laughs> something about someone else's mother, right? Like that's building to that story. And then like there's a huge payoff at the big pay-per-view. What you don't see is like you see LeBron and Steph Curry chirping at each other but you don't know what they're saying you don't really know what's going on and when they get to the post-game conference they say tough fight you know what can you do that's you know that's how the game is played and we're supposed to athletes have a very difficult job in trying to balance being consummate professionals and then on the other hand you know having to be very competitive but we love characters that come out and say Draymond Green is a great example on the Warriors who come out and do actually taunt the other team and that's what you really like because right villains at least make you care a little bit about the sport absolutely got to have a you got to have an enemy right yeah so do you think traditional sports folks would be well served to almost what i'm hearing is an idea that you know athletes star power there's almost two components to it there's how you play on the field and there's the character beyond that yeah i think developing characters is what you need like nobody i think clean cut boring teams are like the worst teams to watch play there's a bit of that in in every sport but like it's the idea that you always want the yankees to be in the playoffs whether no matter what you feel because at least somebody will cheer against them or at least somebody will cheer for them and you have at least split the the audience it makes me think there i mean there's almost a difference in mentality right and maybe you know i think of the professional wrestling is one example of story building and star power development intentional yeah the Olympics, I think, does a lot of that as well. Yeah, and the Olympics have such a short time to do it, right? They need to make you care immediately about something. Right. And they do a pretty good job of soft lens focus and trying to tell you about something they overcame, but it's hard to get... There aren't really villains other than saying, like, the USSR, right? <laughs> it's something that you could say, like, yeah. this country, obviously we don't like them, so we have to beat them. Well, and I don't know. I mean, that that is definitely something I remember from my childhood of we had to beat the US, we had to beat the Russians in hockey yeah. or, you know, even figure skating. And it, but it is amazing, right? Because the, the Olympics are, are an interesting one in that they will spend, they'll spend 45 minutes trying to make us really care about a rower yeah. or a speed skater. And they'll do it. I mean, they'll do it, right? You'll tune in and you'll say, like, all right, I'll watch a couple rounds of rowing to see what happens. But, again, the thing that makes it difficult, right, and I think, right, it's that sort of Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan piece, is that what an amazing story, right? I mean, it is fully scripted out that it's this sort of beautiful thing between two Americans, sort of this class difference, all this other stuff. And at the end, they finish second and sixth. 
right? If it was professional wrestling, they would be one, two. They'd be the only people on the ice, and we'd actually see who the actual best was. Okay, so <laughs> right, that's the only that's the only horrible payoff of all of it is that like you can't actually get one and two all the time. But what a so. what a great example because I think Hara, you're just advocating for the Tanya Harding approach to yeah, figure skating. I am. I'm advocating for the Tanya Harding approach to figure skating and then eliminating all other competitors and just letting them go at it head to head. Do you think there's differences across sports? Mm-hmm. Is there a continuum, I guess, where, look, the NBA is star power, right? WWE is star power. UFC is star power. Is there a danger to that? The danger you see is what's happening in the NBA now, where stars go to play with other stars and they are five good teams and everyone else is looking for draft picks, right? That's, that is the biggest danger that occurs when you create star power like the NBA does. Other than, like, there are functions that stop there, right? There are salary caps that stop you from doing that. There are luxury tax that stop you from doing that. There's, you can't just go buy up all the best players. What about the, uh, what about the other side of it? What about if uh, LeBron James decides to retire? Go, I th- go play in Europe. How do you I think that that's fine because I think the, I think it's fine right now for the NBA because I think that there is a stable of great athletes that are still there. When Jordan retired, I can't say the same thing happened because then I think the NBA went through sort of this dark period where, you know, basketball is good and exciting, but then you have the Spurs who are like, if anything, like the example of like boring sports. They are clean cut, play a lot of bounce pass. They like are known for their like Euro step layups. Like it's the, like the worst types of sports to think about. But... With that being said, they like were able to create this dynasty and great, be able to create this championship and then sort of led this sort of next great sort of version of the NBA that we're living So let, let's think about the the UFC or world wrestling uh, entertainment. So I think we can agree that, you know, the, the key to selling this stuff is having compelling storylines, compelling athletes as brands at the top of the cards. To me, one of the interesting things about the business is the sort of regeneration of the business each time. And I think this is much more of an issue. And in wrestling, you have this added level of control, right? I, I can start to develop some young guy. Is there a young guy they're developing right now? Yeah, there's. they have an entire league where they just develop young yeah. athletes, and they're great. They and just it, don't have the star power recognition. And, and it's kind of fun. You can kind of go, well, I think that, got, that guy's going to do it, or this guy's going yeah. to be the future. In the UFC or in boxing, you got a problem, right? In that you got to have someone at the you got to have someone at the top of the card that's going to draw people into pay per view, and sort of what what draws people into that stuff. Yeah, so I think it's it's two things are the issues in some of these other combat sports, not wrestling. So if you're looking at UFC and you're looking at boxing, one issue is the lack of consolidation. So this idea that there are so many belts and I can't tell which one is prestigious or not. Well, I think you're talking boxing. Yeah, it's boxing, right. right. And, and UFC has a little bit of this problem, right? There's sort of multiple divisions, and they all sort of have their own championship. That's that's one of the other. And the other issue is timing, and you saw it a little bit with UFC in the women's division, where sort of it was Rousey, and then Holly Holm beat her, and then Amanda Nunes beat her, and there's Chris Cyborg who plays in sort of or who fights in the sort of the you know, Bellator, the the opposite brand. She wanted to come and fight, and they could never get the well. The, well, Rousey's the great example, right? Yeah. Because so how did Rousey develop? She developed by just winning fights. By winning fights in a brutally efficient manner, right? Yeah. Ten seconds and it's over. Yeah, and, and you want someone like that because, again, it causes a 50-50 split. You either love Ronda Rousey or you hate her. But the minute she lost, all of a sudden now we have to talk about another person who I don't have the backstory on or wasn't following. Well, and so we had developed a brand 
oh, that were spectacular yeah. in terms of driving, you know, record level pay per view results. And so then you want to use that brand. Yeah, and and the more you use it, yeah, the more you use it, the better it gets, right? I well, think. Well, or and the more you use it, though, the more yeah. likely you are to destroy it. Yeah, it's, it's a huge risk, right? And I think that that is something that UFC really struggled with and still has not been able to sort of get over the hump of is. Who are the stars here, and how can we make sure that they don't lose ever again? <laughs> right? Like, how can we make sure they keep winning and never lose? And that's that's the that's the beauty of the WWE, right? Yeah, is that if you want someone to win, all you have to do is rewrite with your pen who you want to win, and, when, and it ends up happening. When I think of the when I think of the UFC, I mean, you, you mentioned did we mention Brock Lesnar? No, Brock Lesnar no. in terms of the WWE. I mean, he was an interesting uh, situation yeah. for the UFC as well, right? And that guy, he's done an awesome job because he never loses. He'll go to WWE for a little while, come back, train in UFC, win his UFC fight, go back to WWE, win a bunch of fights there. He doesn't lose in anything. So he's great. He's great for both brands. And that's why I don't think either brand mind sharing him across the way. Because if he loses a UFC fight, WWE says, oh, that's... Well, what do you think of Ronda Rousey in the WWE? You think that's going to work? Oh, yes. It's not only will it work, it is already working gangbusters. You think it has long-term legs? It has long-term legs. They are already, like, you can sort of see them telegraphing the move. There's another UFC fighter in the sort of the minor leagues of WWE, Shayna Baszler, who is phenomenal and outstanding. She is going to, at some point, fight Ronda Rousey, and you know it's going to be a major main event at WrestleMania or something. It's... You can see the writing on the wall, and you can tell that they are going to put on like a great show. Especially, it's essentially going to be, you know, sort of a big middle finger to UFC when they're like, "Look what we could do when we actually script things when you can't do it when you have them actually fight." Well, how do you, if you're the WWE, how do you make the competition seem legitimate? Like Ronda has, like there's an opportunity that Ronda could be could lose. So I think that one of the things that happens is WWE has done a very good job of not pretending that it's a real sport. And I think that that's sort of a big disconnect of people. It's something that's changed over years. Yeah, something who, someone who is a big wrestling fan and someone who like sort of observes wrestling from outside, I don't think there's any wrestling fan who believes that it's real. It's like obviously a fake thing. We all know it is. I think you, it's the same way you know Game of Thrones is fake or the same way you know any other television show you know is fake. I know it's fake. Obviously dragons aren't real. That'd be That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. But my job is to guess every week what's going to happen next. And that's what actually keeps me in. It's not this idea of me saying this is obviously a sanctioned competition where they're, you know, whoever could win. But it's your job to try and guess. And then when you get sort of outguessed or tricked by the brand, then you say like, wow, what, you know, never saw that coming. I never saw that kind of finish happening to Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones or WWE. That's, I think, the way you look at it. And I think it's a little bit different than what we're watching now in the NBA Finals where I'm trying to guess that the Cavaliers will get swept and it looks like they'll get swept. And then that's, there's no, there's not really a great storyline there. When you watch wrestling then, do you uh, tend to emphasize the matches or do you tend to emphasize the, uh, the mic work? It's definitely the matches, but I don't think I, I don't think everyone would agree with that. It's, it's a personal view. I think it's essentially very good. It's very, physical Cirque du Soleil, right? I mean, they're going and doing sort of amazing things and jumping around and hitting each other in in sort of these beautifully choreographed movements. But I think there's another piece to this mic work that, like, really gets you into it. Like, I could watch a wrestling match between two people I don't know and appreciate the ring work, but I also watch wrestling and read blogs and do that stuff. I think it would be tough for someone just to jump in and be like, this is a good wrestling match without like understanding what everyone's position is and everything. That's, that's interesting. So you can, uh, you can enjoy this on multiple levels. Yeah. And so you can, it's almost like the, the idea of watching 
the purist that enjoys a Floyd Mayweather fight. Exactly. So, like, anecdote is that my wife and I went to Japan to watch New Japan Pro Wrestling, which is sort of an, another brand of wrestling that happens in Japan. And we went to this very famous wrestling hall in Japan, in Tokyo, and we went and watched it there. And I didn't know any of the wrestlers, but I could, like, appreciate what was happening. But my wife, who didn't understand what was going on and was dragged there, was like, I don't understand what's going on. This is all crazy to me. And, right, and I think, like, that's the difference between, like, someone who is very into the sport and I think is the same if you're in a big NBA fan and you can watch a mid-season game with the Bucks and Clippers playing and you'd be like, this is good basketball. Between, you know, myself, who, like, definitely wouldn't tune into a mid-season basketball game, I think it's the same kind of concept. Oh, I, under, I understand that. You know, I, I, I'm a big college basketball fan. And if I think back to my, some of my younger days, you know, I'd be watching Seton Hall play uh, UConn yeah. on a February evening. Yeah, just to see. Just to see if they could shoot, right? <laughs> well, just, and, and just to see because, you know, they had a point guard and, you know, you're almost playing amateur uh, NBA scout. And is this guy going to be an NBA player? You yeah. Know? That kind of obsession, which is interesting. So your wife does not share your obsession? She does not share it or enjoy it. But unfortunately, it's. I think that was her big thing. She said, like, when I got married, I, the biggest thing I realized is how much you like. That was the biggest surprise. I thought it was, like, sort of, like, ironic. But I was like, no, I'm very into this very seriously. You know, I want most of the focus to be on, let's say, the business of this. And, you know, we've talked some about the idea of, you know, building these brands, building these storylines to sell pay-per-views. But I want to ask you something more on a personal level. Is your apartment full of WWE paraphernalia? Are there action figures <laughs> in unopened packages in the house? I don't. So I have um, one of the my favorite stories is that for our wedding on our registry, there were sort of two very expensive things. There was my wife wanted a mixer, like one of the big KitchenAid mixers. And I wanted uh, a big WCW championship belt. Like, And they were both $400. And so I said, like, listen, we'll just put them on. I'm guessing she got hers. (laughs) So we put it on the registry. And then um, a bunch of my friends went in and they bought me the big championship belt. uh, And then no one bought her the mixer. So every time she would make cookies, I'd give her the belt and be like, congratulations, you're the champion of this batch of cookies. That joke was very funny to one of us and not very funny to the other. So. I, I can't tell you how happy that story makes yeah, me. It's, that, she did, that she actually didn't get the she mixer. She didn't get the mixer, and uh, finally she got one, so then, uh, you know, to stop me from handing her the belt every time she makes cookies. And, so. and is this belt, you should have actually worn it today, yeah. is, is this like full-on cubic zirconia and just it, a beautiful it's, Yeah, thing? it's a huge belt. It's probably 20, 25 pounds. It's <laughs> like a giant, massive belt. It's the one... From like WCW in the mid '90s, if you you know oh. if you watch that, the giant big gold belt. So yeah, I have it in my house. One of the things that's interesting that's that's happened. I mean, so we mentioned the idea of pay per view as and and so the wrestling business was always interesting to me, right? This idea of I guess free TV to essentially market the brands and the stories. Then you go on the road uh, or that you sell pay per view. Yeah. Something, the WWE has moved into something different. I think you're actually part of that, right? Yep. I'm a big WWE Network subscriber, so I pay $9.99 a month every month for the last four years to, (laughs) three or four years to watch wrestling, access old videos, and then access all these pay-per-views. Now, that strikes me as a very interesting development from a business perspective. And so I'll I'll sort of act like the professor here for for a second and say, so what do you think is interesting about that? So one, I think they are pretty much making the same amount of revenue as they were previously, um, if not more revenue. Uh, $9.99 a month, they have a shade over 2 million subscribers, according to our last report, their quarterly report. They are making a ton of money off of it. 
The bigger deal, I think, is that they have better access to their customers. Uh, so better understanding of what they want to watch. So not only are there pay-per-views every month, you can get, actually get access to very old shows. You can watch all the old WCW shows, the old NWA shows, anything that you want to see over that time period. And then you can also get access to specialty content. They have podcasts and all this other stuff that are on the network. And then they sort of have a channel that runs all the time. So with that, it's sort of for nine ninety nine. It's everything you would ever want as a wrestling fan, which is great. But on top of that, there is this idea that now they have a better understanding of who is this audience who would pay $10 a month every month to watch wrestling. And those are your sort of core fan base, which I think is very difficult to find in most businesses to say, who are my super fans? And essentially, they are asking fans to pay to self-identify themselves as these super fans who would do anything for the brand. I, I took two things out of what you just said. So the first one... So now suddenly things are addressable. Yeah. They actually know who you are as opposed to how their business operated historically. Right? It's like, we don't know who's watching this on TV. Yeah. We know how many people. We don't know who they are. So they now have individual information. And beyond that, now they can actually track your history as a user. Yeah. And so as a marketing research tool as well, they can actually see what you're watching. Yeah. And then in addition, they're sending out surveys quarterly or yearly to say who are your favorite wrestlers who are wrestlers that you've heard of who are more wrestlers you'd like to see you know come up or you know have bigger uh, promotions and it's sort of an interesting way that they can sort of look back and say like all right well 80 percent of our customers would want to see this wrestler do better like let's write him into more storylines and sort of see if we can monetize some of that or make more shirts or whatever that ends up being uh, to help the brand well i mean and, and you don't even have to do the survey right you could do it passively Exactly. Who are people watching? Yeah, who are people watching and who are people engaging with is, is sort of the two ways you could do it that way as well. Yeah, and I mean, who are the interviews people are watching with? The You know, this idea of better information. I mean, it's, it's always an intuitive thing, right? Yeah. More information is better. Yeah. They'll always have more information, and, and I think it's – and because of the way they work is that, you know, Major League Baseball has all this information on me about also being a Braves fan, but they can only – tailor content so much they can't make the Braves win it's the, sort of this idea of this thing if you if you know 80% of people like this guy and he's been languishing like you could give him a little bit yeah. of a run and see where he ends up going yeah I mean it, it's the great thing about the WWE right they actually have the the ability to control what happens yeah so an amazing storyline this year to sort of get to this point is WWE Network was about to launch in India for the first time and they like wanted to bring have an Indian champion there's only one Indian wrestler and he's this guy Jinder Mahal he's you know, sort of been a bad guy for a super long time, but they said, let's put the belt on him. They got him up to champion from essentially nowhere. He ended up being champion, held the belt for probably three months while they did a tour of India, and then he <laughs> dropped the belt to someone else and then has gone back to the sort of the mid-card of wrestling. And that's, right, one of those things you can do when you own a multi-million dollar <laughs> national brand where you write stories. But it's a beautiful thing, too, because in, in a way they've, they've sort of developed an asset yeah. that they can bring this guy back. Exactly. In in terms of the WWE network, so market research, identifying who their fan bases are. What'd you say? I think you said to nine ninety nine a month. Yeah. And, and so I think the other thing that's really kind of great about this idea is they've now it, it's almost like a health club membership, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you have to you have to have it if you are a wrestling fan. There's n not really any other options to because you're not going to go buy the pay per view for 
60 bucks or whatever it is. Okay, so they've they've priced it to make it uh, appealing to get you to to lock in. They they probably had a lot of debate about whether there was going to be dilution on this though, right? Yeah. There's definitely a dilution debate, but um WWE just signed two massive contracts, TV contracts this year. Uh they signed a billion dollar contract with Fox and then did another 3x revenue contract with uh NBC this year. And so they're going to go and make buku dollars on the tv side and then in addition have these this fan base that's always going to pay this ten dollars to be well and it's a really interesting business model then because in a way those tv deals that are also lucrative for them actually end up being probably feeders to get to exactly and one of the things that's interesting is the tv contract is exclusive so none of the content that appears on tv is on the app so you have to have it as a complement to the, the actual TV watching because the TVs don't have pay-per-views or you'd have to buy them in excess. The app has all the pay-per-views, but none of the TV content. So if you, in order to watch the storylines, you have to watch TV and then you switch over to the app to watch the pay-per-view and then you watch TV in order to catch up to the next pay-per-view. Do they have a loyalty program on this thing? Uh, they don't have a loyalty, or at least I am not aware of one where they're giving me anything for being a fan <laughs> for this long. Do you think they could add something like that? And uh, I'm just asking you as sort of this this MBA hitting the world. Where would you go next with this uh, with this business model? I, so what's interesting about the loyalty program idea is that like there should be some reward for the person who signed up the longest. If you're not if you're a wrestling fan and don't have WWE Network, then you're like in the out group. Like I don't think you're a wrestling fan. So I don't. I think like it is the loyalty group, right? Like if you don't have WWE Network, then like what are you doing? Like where, <laughs> how are you, how are you keeping up with? It? Are you reading? But like what? There's no way you could watch anything. So. I think it's more table stakes to be a fan than anything else. Well, where would you go with this next then? I think the next big thing with WWE is to figure out how they can revenue share with some of the other global wrestling brands. So WWE is sort of the big kahuna everywhere. And there are sort of these other smaller brands that would like bigger stages, would like more eyeballs, etc. And if you are someone who's subscribing, I'm spending $120 a year to watch wrestling, I am definitely someone who's watching other types of wrestling, right? I'm not I'm not exclusive to WWE. And so this idea of like being able to bolster some of these other brands is really interesting. So WWE has a lot of shared talent contracts with a lot of these other brands that say like let me use your wrestlers on our shows. But if you think about it the other way where they loan out wrestlers, right? The same way that you would think Real Madrid does a transfer fee. You do a transfer fee, you let them have some big star and then you put them on the main event of that show. You could essentially have 30 pay-per-views and say like everyone get on the network you can watch all different types of wrestling and it can all be on whatever network you want it to be beautiful thank you very much harry you're very welcome it is a like i said i i can't admit to being the fan at the same level as you are but i grew up with wrestling in the 80s one of my favorite people and that was bobby heenan actually yeah um gorilla monsoon and I, i very well remember the new world order and the the, the Hulk Hogan heel turn. The thing I always say is if you watched wrestling at one point, please come back. We're, we're all, we are our arms open. We're wet, ready to welcome everyone back into wrestling. Uh, I'll tell you, I think my favorite guy of all time is actually Stone Cold. Yeah, Stone Cold Steve Austin, man. The best. You know, and, and every time I see that guy popping up in a random Adam Sandler movie yeah. or something, <laughs> it, it just makes me happy. I, I don't think he can carry a movie, but, you know, that, that stardom transcends. Maybe not to the level of The Rock, but it's a beautiful thing. Yep. Thank you very much, Harry.